You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 127 by Rudolf Steiner, translated by uh, Matthew Barton. Uh, It is 16 lectures entitled The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution. This is Lecture 7, entitled The Influx of Spiritual Insights into Life, given in St. Gallen on the 26th of February, 1911. In our branch meetings, we acquire ideas about the nature of the human being, about human evolution, learning, for instance, that we are constituted of physical body, etheric body, astral body, and I. While this is certainly a gain relative to the general knowledge prevailing in the world today, we cannot say that this more or less theoretical understanding of ours as yet amounts to what anthroposophy can in truth be for human beings. Anthroposophy will only become what it should be for each individual and also for our human community if it passes into life, if it becomes living practice. And on occasions such as this, when I myself can see you again, dear friends, I am glad to be able to turn your attention to the fact that the ideas the laws at work in the universe and in humankind, which we otherwise learn about in the annual program of these branch meetings, play an important role in human life itself. Today I would like to reflect upon how anthroposophy actually flows into life. Those who may as yet know little about anthroposophy may often wonder this. Yes, we speak here of the realities and truths of supersensible nature, But how can someone who is not yet clairvoyant say anything much about these worlds of spirit? How can anything be known of these worlds except the things that others relate? This is a very common preconception, but it has very little justification. It is true that without clairvoyance we cannot, for instance, perceive the human being's astral body. But what happens to and with this astral body can be experienced firsthand. And here, anthroposophy is extraordinarily helpful. Let me cite an instance of how someone can experience the fact that they do possess an astral body. As you know, in daily life, people are used to doing many things without thinking, many things, too, that they do not even intend to do. Consider how many people do things from morning to night without fully reflecting on what they are doing, without being fully present. And later, they may realize that they themselves were not entirely happy with what they did. Isn't it true to say that we then do things that we only partially consider or reflect upon, only partly accompany them with our thoughts? Such unthinking habits are often due to our tendency to absorb things from without that we would not do if we reflected consciously on them, or if we educated ourselves differently. From a materialistic point of view, it might seem as if 
it were a matter of indifference whether we act in ways that accord with our intentions or not, whether we do things that we can justify to ourselves or not. To clairvoyant perception this is not so. To clairvoyant vision it is apparent that every act, every action that is not morally justifiable to us, makes an impression or imprint upon our astral body. It is like a blow to our astral body. And of those who act in such ways, you can say that they have many ruptures, many pits and hollows in their astral body, because they do many things that they would not be able to justify morally if they thought about them. I am not now thinking of professional matters, but of habitual actions. Here, every such impact affects the astral body, and because it does not fade but resides there, it acts further upon the etheric body too, is imprinted there like a signet impress, and remains there, so that the person walks around with all these signet imprints in their etheric body. Those who are not clairvoyant can say that up to this point that they have no way of knowing this, yet what occurs here is actually experienced. Things remain present in a certain way, really for the whole of the rest of a person's life, and work back upon them so that they may sometimes feel they have had enough of life, or they may display sullen ill humor to those around them, and this sullenness works back upon their own health. It is extremely important to be aware of such things. Often, you see, for instance, around the age of 37, something will emerge that makes us inwardly morose, without any apparent cause, that puts us in ill humor, makes us melancholy, and will then have a harmful effect on our health. It can play havoc with our digestive system and cause other such conditions. This may have been set in motion when we were, say, twenty years old, when the imprint of the astral upon the etheric was first instigated. Thus we can say that only the clairvoyant can perceive what lives in the astral body, but that everyone can experience its effect. Some people would never become morose, displaying a certain instability and sense of inner hopelessness, nor would they, their bodily organism become so debilitated if they considered that actions whose consequences do not immediately become apparent in the world nevertheless enter our invisible being and only later come to view. If someone were to decide to observe whether what the clairvoyant says is true or not, they would soon see and feel the truth of such things. The actions and deeds we do every day but cannot justify to ourselves lead to consequences for us. Let us consider the opposite case, someone who can think and reflect in broader dimensions than they can actually bring into effect. This is the case for every idealist. They know they cannot realize all their ideals, but only some of them. If we harbor great ideas, we must be happy if we can realize just a portion of them. If we are able to reflect on matters that go far beyond what life allows us, this also works back upon the astral body, but differently, so that a person then imbues it with healthy forces 
that render them strong, inwardly stable and tranquil. If, say, a person was an idealist around the age of twenty and not crediting materialistic views, retained belief and trust in their ideals, this will become apparent later on in life in that they will not be too shaken by every little mishap nor by ailments. They will remain more steadfast and be content to let be what will, as opposed to others who did not develop ideals in earlier life. Thus ideals we have that go beyond what life allows us to realize can give us stability and tranquility. Mainstream physicians are already becoming aware of this, but they do not know how to make real use of it, how to encourage people to have a full range of positive thoughts that surpass mundane realities. Certainly there are popular books that are thought to be beneficial for mental health. Such books recommend developing calmer and more consistent thoughts to achieve stability, tranquility, equanimity, and so on. This is a very good place to begin for some people, though it does not take us very far down the road toward finding real soul nourishment. Books by authors such as Dubach and Ralph Waldo Trine are very good as a starting point. As far as the real requirements of soul health are concerned, however, they offer no more than would be gained by asking what we need to be physically healthy and getting the answer that we need to eat healthy food, food whose substances can easily be absorbed by the organism. It's true, of course. But this leaves unanswered the question as to what food this is exactly. It leaves unanswered what the actual steps are for achieving soul health. These books, which have as much to say about mental health as such rules would have to say about physical health, are fine as a first step, but will not offer any real assistance in the course of our further quest. By contrast, spiritual science offers us thoughts of the most precise kind, very specific thoughts, about how people have engaged in self-development in all eras and how they can do so today. This becomes ever more apparent through the treasures of anthroposophic wisdom. So that we can say this, spiritual science gives us great opportunities to reach in our thoughts far beyond what we can actually realize in life. Anthroposophy, therefore, makes us inwardly stable, enabling us to draw forth from within a balance and equanimity whenever something occurs in our close proximity and threatens to unsettle and upset us. Whether something unsettling reaches our ears is not what matters, but the attention we give to it, and how we engage with it. Things that occur outside us play into our inner state, which can fluctuate between being over the moon at one moment and deeply downcast the next, and these volatile excesses of feeling undermine our moral and physical health. There are plenty of painful states of soul, and these can be compared to the clattering of the mill wheel. The miller who works in the mill no longer even registers the sounds. Thus we can surrender to every least painful incident and magnify the sound, if you like, 
of our own clattering mill-wheel, or we can divert our attention from it. This will not work if our soul is empty, but it will if we possess an inner content of soul from which we can draw strength. Let's take an example. Imagine two people, one of whom goes to the office every day and works. At lunchtime he has a drink or two and talks to people. In the evening he has another little drink and then he goes to bed. When something disrupts the normal rhythm of his life, such a person will immediately be overwhelmed by it. He attends to the clattering of his own mill-wheel, his own hurt or pain, for he possesses nothing within him he can draw upon to drown out the noise of it. A second person likewise fulfills his daily tasks, but unlike the other he harbors within him many thoughts of great scope, such as spiritual science affords us. These resound from within him so that he no longer hears the outer clatter and rattle. It is not that we need make arduous efforts to draw such content forth. It simply appears by itself, by virtue of the fact that we have attached strong feelings to it. Therefore we will suffer less from the slings and arrows of life, finding ever more comfort from what we have acquired within us through years of spiritual effort. This becomes a possession, a special and precious one, that no one can take from us. Everything else we acquire in the world, or that is given us, can be taken from us. But what we acquire for the Spirit becomes a possession that henceforth we can never be deprived of. People like saying that death is the great leveler, certainly, but it is equally true that there is no conceivable situation where what I have said would not hold good. Being rich, belonging to an aristocratic family, will not help us here. To gain this spiritual possession, we must all pursue one and the same path. It is not only death that makes all one, but the life of the Spirit, too, before which all are equal. And this endows this life of the Spirit with a far-reaching significance, for from it flows something that raises us above the illusions of the sensory world. Someone might object that a slate might fall on my head and cripple me, or I could suffer a brain injury and lose my mind. But if we really make the treasures of anthroposophy our own, so that we possess them inwardly, we will know that such a condition is only a passing one. Even if our brain were gravely damaged, this would only be like wishing to make something and finding the tool broken that we wanted to do it with for instance, wanting to hammer in a nail and finding the hammer broke as we did so. All we can do then is find another hammer. The same is true of the brain. Consciousness can lose its tools, but in a new life we can remake them. We need not let our sense of eternity fail in relation to the inviolability of our spiritual possessions. It is not a matter of knowledge alone, but of this knowledge penetrating our heart and doing so in such a way that we retain fruits which lead us even beyond the loss of the tool and instrument of our cognition. All this testifies to the fact that such things act upon our astral body. How exactly they do so is something only the clairvoyant can know, but the consequences can be experienced by each and every person in their daily life.
someone who often acts in ways they cannot morally justify, and who becomes morose in consequence, will easily suffer pain whenever something unsettling happens. But if, in response to the same occurrences, a person can rate them as little compared to their inner experiences and ideals, the certainty will emanate a healing effect. They will be able always to hold to the eternal that lives in them. And if, in this fulsome way, the spirit of eternity approaches us, as is the case in anthroposophy, then we are safe in all of life's circumstances. Now, my dear friends, there are other things that can convince us that the spiritual treasures we assimilate, which we imbue ourselves with, have a very close connection with our whole happiness in life, our full engagement with it. Just as someone can have good moods, so they can also suffer bad moods that may continually return and plague them, that dominate their whole inner soul configuration. Here the spiritual researcher will say that such moods come to expression in a person's supersensible nature. They lodge in the etheric body, imprint themselves in the physical body, and act upon the blood. When a mood affects the etheric body, an action is exerted upon the blood, and the result of this is a tenor of mood that continually returns to plague someone throughout their life. This impairs their blood circulation, makes their blood heavy. And here we have an instance where we can say that the effect of what occurs in the soul passes into the physical body. Even someone who is not clairvoyant can notice this and say that their body hampers them, that they suffer from it and that this results from their whole mood. If they could change this, they say, then they know that they could exert a healing effect upon their whole constitution. Now it might be thought that we then need only free ourselves from the physical body, but it is not a question of requiring someone to recognize the body's dependence on the mind and spirit, but of the reality that the strength of the spirit allows us to become independent of the body. We become independent precisely by making the body an instrument of the spirit. The materialist who believes the teachings of materialism is better off than someone who is actually dependent on energy and substance, so that, for instance, they can be in only one place in winter and spend the summer only in some other place. To avoid ailments, such as neurasthenia, they become entirely dependent on physical conditions. Thus it is not a matter only of believing in these teachings of energy and matter, but actually becoming dependent on material conditions. What kind of life is it, after all, if we are always obliged to spend winter only in the city and summer only in the country? Prayer and belief do not help such a person, for they are a materialist in the full sense. They have actually become dependent on, in quotes, energy and substance. If we allow thoughts derived from spiritual inquiry to work upon us, our connection with the world of spirit becomes apparent to us. But we see something else as well. If we are very unhappy, to an extent that someone else could not deal with, we find that an anthroposophist can deal with it. 
Imagine someone who's 18 years old, who's been used to having things paid for by his father, but now his father goes bankrupt. Suddenly he has to work. He may experience this as misfortune. Time goes by, and he reaches the age of 50. Then he can look back and say, quote, Thank God this misfortune occurred, for otherwise I would have become a good-for-nothing. Once we are no longer embroiled in misfortune, we can regard it as an instrument of our development. We must be able to say that our own karma presented us with this misfortune and that we needed its educative effect in our lives. Someone who can form such thoughts at least will not grumble at the world at times of misfortune, but recognize the validity and wisdom in it. But gradually this will create in us moods that have a quite different effect from our feelings of dependency on energy and substance. Now we know, rather, that we are dependent on the guidance of the spiritual cosmos. This imparts itself to our mood. And through the resulting effects upon our etheric body, we remove ourselves from dependency on energy and substance. And then we do not need to go to the Riviera in order to improve our mood, but instead our spiritual possessions enable us to shape our inner instruments so as to become independent of external factors. Ways to sustain such a mood are not found in the writings of Ralph Waldo Trine and others. But pouring the wisdom of anthroposophy into our mood does render us independent of matter and energy, opening us to a source that raises us beyond time and space. Then we remove ourselves from the power of matter and work back upon the instrument of our body. Gradually, by this means, we acquire practical benefits for the way we live. Not everyone believes this straight away, my dear friends. Since all are so dependent on matter and energy, very few are disposed to recognize such things. Experience could teach them that these things are true, for experience can offer us living proofs. Spiritual science has practical fruits, you see, that become apparent in very mundane ways in our actual lives. I'd like to offer examples of what spiritual science teaches and to do so will cite some very mundane circumstances. Because we engage with outward matter on the physical plane, in certain situations we must be able to discern the spirit at work in this matter surrounding us. For matter is only an illusion, maya, and everything is really concentrated spirit. In ordinary life, we must gain a sense of the spirit within material objects. Thus, our outward relationship with things must be such that we can still find what you might call intimate connections with them. There are people who often wash their hands and others who rarely do so. In some ways, there is a big difference between the first and the second. In respect of our various bodily parts, we are in fact pervaded by the supersensible in very different ways. For instance, the etheric body does not pervade our chest and upper thigh to the same extent as it does our hands. From the fingers especially, powerful etheric rays stream out. And because this is so, we can develop a wonderfully intimate relationship with the outer world 
through our hands. Those who often wash their hands have a finer relationship to their surroundings, are more subtly sensitive to them, because through the spirit materialized in the blood, an effect issues to make a person more sensitive in their hands. Those with thicker skins for the surrounding world do not often wash their hands. You can observe how insensitive such robust people are to the singularities of their fellow human beings. Whereas those who wash their hands often enter into a more intimate relationship with their surroundings. If someone were to try to bring about something similar elsewhere, say, with the shoulders, if they were to wash them as much as the hands, they would likely develop neurasthenia. What is healthy for the hands is not good for the shoulders. Our organism is such that we can develop this intimate relationship to our surroundings through our hands. It would also be detrimental to wash the face so often. To treat the face like this would not be beneficial for health. Things are quite different for other parts of the human body. People who have not been properly schooled in spiritual science, physicians with a materialistic outlook, for instance, do not notice the difference and recommend cold ablutions for children. Such things are done to a fanatical degree. People ought to realize that such a measure is worse than anything else. It creates the tendency for neurasthenia, is an absurd undermining of health. The hands cope with it, whereas it makes the rest of the body receptive to materiality. Here you see the effect of materialism. I'm speaking here in general terms. Things are different in cases where such a measure is used temporarily for a curative purpose. The youngest children are washed down in cold water systematically every morning, a torment for them. But that is not all. They are made to run about naked in the sun, go sunbathing, so that the material aspect of the outer world can act upon them. We should be glad that we can work outward from our inner center and should not render ourselves ever more dependent on matter. This complete exposure of the body to outward influences is the same as if the miller did everything possible to hear the clatter and rattle of the mill wheel and was displeased if he could not hear it. There are exceptions, of course, cases where a temporary remedy of this kind is needed. But if this is done throughout childhood, a person's organism will become susceptible to every least influence. The organism hardens itself, inures itself, so that in the end it is entirely hardened and no longer feels outer influences. Footnote, the transcript of this whole passage records only single key words and phrases, and we have not been able to accurately reconstruct it. Editors, end of footnote. Such insights do not arise simply from ordinary pragmatism. That is impossible. We can only assess such things once we understand the whole human being. But you can deduce from very simple things that the human being is complex and that the most diverse interrelationships exist between our physical, etheric and astral body and so forth. You may perhaps have found it difficult to take seriously what was said today about the particular ways in which the astral and etheric bodies are connected with the physical body. 
On the one hand, I have said that the removal or the illness of a particular organ can bring a person close to a condition of idiocy. But if you give the thyroid extract of a sheep, say, to such a person, they will regain their faculties again. This is a well-known fact. But it is one we can only properly evaluate through spiritual science. Why does this happen? Well, not only in the thyroid, but also in the far larger number of glands, we find instruments built up from the etheric body. We need our tools in the physical world to do all sorts of things. In the same way that we need a hammer to hammer in a nail, so we need the tools or instruments for the purposes for which they are given us. If they are removed, we no longer possess them. But this does not mean it is impossible to substitute something else that acts in the same way. We have to know, though, that such an action is only possible if the etheric body is functioning. In the case of organs that are related to the astral body, we cannot bring about an organic change by substituting their secretion. I witnessed how people with a brain defect ate sheep brains or such like without any improvement in brain function, since the brain is an organ that relates to the astral body. We can see here how spiritual science sheds light on these things too. We do not understand the human being if we cannot study these higher supersensible members of the human being, for basically we then have no idea at all of what is at work. Accounts in modern medical books seem to suggest that a person loses their reason when the thyroid is morbid or has been removed. This is not so. They lose only their participation, their interest. They grow dull and do not apply their reason. Not being able to think does not mean we are stupid. If you have no interest in something, your reason is still intact. What is lost is the living engagement we have with things, our interest, attention to things. Someone devoid of interest does not direct his attention to anything, since he lacks the tools for this. We do not give him reason with the thyroid, but we give him a tool for engaged participation with the world. We judge a person quite wrongly if we know nothing at all about the supersensible world, and a great portion of what is taught in our scientific and popular books is at this level. When you read that loss of the thyroid renders people idiotic, and that they become brighter again by consuming thyreodine, this is not true. What is true, rather, is that their attention is re-engaged. Wherever you look, you can ascertain that what clairvoyant inquiry discovers is not fantastical. Though not everyone can see it, what the clairvoyant perceives can be proven to exist. I would urge you to reflect on this. Though you may not be able to accept communications based on clairvoyant inquiry, you can experience their validity firsthand in the world gaining indirect evidence of the truth of such communications. I have said various things about the way in which the astral body's influence becomes apparent in life. I have described the living effect of the etheric body. Now I would like to make a few remarks about the I capital, which will enable you to connect anthroposophic theory to lived reality. As you know, weeping and sorrow are universal phenomena. 
What does it signify in life to feel an externally caused sadness that manifests in physical tears, or to have an inward soul experience that likewise expresses itself in tears? We have in us something that enables us not only to experience what lives within our body, but in ordinary normal awareness, that allows us to experience and empathize with what is occurring around us. We participate in our surroundings when we are saddened by some loss and weep. What does this tell us? That we can take into ourselves what lives in our surroundings and can bear it fully within us, in our heart. It signifies that we have an I within us, which has a mysterious, magical connection with our whole surroundings. Through this magical connection with things that do not live within us, we experience our connection with the world outside us. The I can live in us in two ways. Firstly, in an egoistic way. Then we are concerned with our tears, primarily as a way of gaining relief from our pain, because we do not wish to truly engage with it. Or, secondly, sadness can also be fully justified because we absorb into us something that lives in our environment. For this reason, tears are most precious in someone who is saddened by things that have as little as possible to do with them personally. There are people who weep in mere egoism because they cannot cope with what is happening in their life or cannot bear their own loss. And then there are indeed those who weep about things that do not directly concern them, cry like a baby, as the phrase has it, about something in a novel or a play. And this capacity, a certain shimmer, can pass from their own sadness also to encompass all other tears and sorrow. For the more we are moved about everything else in the world, the greater does our sadness become. And in our sorrow we are, in a sense, led toward our I by means that are not egoistic. A creature devoid of the I cannot weep or be sad. The claim that animals also cry is therefore nonsense. Certainly animals cannot cry or sorrow as human beings do. The dog may appear sad only because he is not getting everything he did when his master was there. The psychologists are right when they say that animals can only howl, whereas human beings weep. Weeping and sorrow offer the strongest proof of the depth of the I within us and the ability it gives us to connect with what is around us. In sorrow, the resulting compression or contraction of our I emerges as tears. And because this is so, we can say that basically weeping and tears are connected with the inmost core of our human nature. When we re-establish our inner footing, we can best express this condition through tears. In Goethe's Faust, when Faust decides against suicide and removes the cup of poison from his lips, the words that follow are most profound. Quote, My tears are flowing. The earth has me once more. Close quote. The eye is speaking at this moment, coming to expression in these words. Quote, My tears are flowing. The earth has me once more. Close quote. The sorrowing sympathy we feel with our surroundings is connected with our inmost being. 
and what is connected with our inmost being requires us to pay serious heed to it. It is important that we can become sorrowful about the misery around us, though never through merely imagined misery. All the plays that portray human misery elicit only unnatural stirrings in the soul. All unreal misery on the stage can be connected with human dignity only insofar as the hero, the protagonist, emerges victorious even if he dies. The plays that present misery to us can only be endured if we witness the triumph of good. In that case they have a right to our sorrow and our tears, for they embed in us fully the sense of sorrow we may feel in the face of reality. But there is also an opposite I experience, which we can call by many names. We find it in laughter, joviality, pleasure, perhaps even in jokes. Here we participate in a cosmic element. It would be inhuman to laugh at someone with an actual mental impairment, but to laugh at an imagined idiocy is very liberating. It is good to experience foolishness, idiocy, for it has a healing effect to do so. Circus clowns are a good remedy for the soul. This laughter once again leads us to our own eye. If we are able to laugh, we raise ourselves above a situation, becoming conscious of our own inner worth and thus elevating ourselves. There is something wonderfully healthy and healing in the burlesque jokes of the Punchinello Theatre, through to the tomfooleries and hilarious contradictions of comedians, whereas laughing at actual idiocy betrays a complete lack of humanity. It is rather curious how the eye comes to expression in its healthy relationship to our surroundings, in relation to sorrow, to real, not merely depicted sorrow, we feel the urge to cry. The reverse is true of laughter and jokery. We are inhuman if we laugh at the natural failings and foolishness of another person, but it is healthy and humanly educative if we take pleasure in the portrayal of comedy, for then it points us to the sound and healthy eye that lives in us. And so you see how this healing element can also be regarded in the world when we become aware that we also possess an eye. But now let us ask this. In our materialistic age, does this also become apparent in relation to art? Yes, indeed, it comes to very characteristic expression. If people were actually to encounter situations such as those depicted in plays by Hauptmann or Zudermann, a great many of them would be overcome entirely. They can endure a depiction of what in actual life would sadden them and move them to intervene. Of course, they can't intervene when these things are portrayed on stage. How does such a reversal of reality come about? It is because in our age of materialism, people live most outside themselves, in the periphery, where the eye is not actually in play. The most terrible event in world evolution, the mystery of Golgotha, can sadden us most of all, the suffering and whole tragedy of Christ Jesus. And then we can rejoice most greatly at the portrayal of the victory of eternal life over death and the resurrection. There is no other victory in which such a sublime hallelujah is so closely related to such profound sorrow. 
all the suffering of the death on Golgotha and all the glorious rejoicing of Easter in the resurrection. There is no other event in which the profoundest sorrow and the most sublime rejoicing come to expression in this way. And for this reason there is no deeper wisdom than that of Paul in relation to this whole event. Not I, but Christ in me. Here we see how we can find the right focus to make the I within us as stable as possible when it imbues itself with the revelation of Christ. In pervading its teachings with Christ, anthroposophy enables this insight also to penetrate into our I, giving us the greatest possible certainty in life, the greatest strength for living. You see, it is only by understanding Christ, as we do in spiritual science, that we can gain the right vantage point and focus. Thus, if anthroposophy is to come into effect in the way I have suggested in my book titled Occult Science and Outline, then we will seek to offer something that can endow people with the kind of stability found in the saying, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote. By means of it, the human being can increasingly be transformed. We can find within us a resurgent awareness of eternity, discovering that what we thus assimilate can never again be taken from us. And then we will sense what it means for Johann Gottlieb Fichte, a great forerunner of anthroposophy, to say, quote, When I feel and grasp my connection with the eternal, I can look to you cliffs and to you mountains and say, You may fall down upon me and bury my body and destroy its last solar particle, crush all my physical tools, yet I defy you, for you are not eternal. I, though, am connected with eternity. I am eternal. Anthroposophy can best of all convey to us this connection to the eternal, and then we can stand here on the earth and speak these words of Fichte with him. Such words are those of someone who understands eternal wisdom. Thus speaks someone who absorbs anthroposophy, addressing their whole corporeal, astral, etheric being, elevating their existence, integrating themselves into worlds of spirit, knowing that they are spirit of that same spirit. The human being, you see, is not only flesh of flesh, but spirit of the eternal spirit. End of Lecture 7